Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If not, grab a pew Bible from the seat in front of you and turn to Romans chapter 3. You can find it on the pew Bible on page 884. So go ahead and turn, turn there. We're going to look at the uh, objections to, or objections about the righteousness of God that Paul is going to hear and, and consider. Tom Schreiner, one of the um, wrote, wrote a big commentary on the book of Romans, 1,000 pages. Uh, it's like, it's my go-to, uh, kind of my, my go-to commentary that I've been looking at and reading and studying from as I've been working through the book of, of Romans. He calls uh, this text, Romans 3, 1 through 8, the most difficult text in the entire book of Romans, which is saying something because there's some really difficult passages uh, arguably, texts other than this one are some of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. Right? As a pastor and kind of someone who fields questions about the Bible from time to time, I get a lot of questions about the Bible, and uh, some passages later in Romans are the ones that I get most often. But Tom Schreiner says this text is, is the most difficult one in all in the, in the entire book. And it's difficult because it brings up some, some tough questions. It brings up some, some difficult questions uh, that, don't necess- that, that Paul answers them, but doesn't answer them exhaustively. He doesn't answer them in, like, as much and, and, and unpack them as much as he could. In fact, he'll do that later in, in the letter. And so we're going to see a few questions, a few objections today that, that really it's not going to be until Romans 9 through 11 for some of them that they get unpacked in greater detail. And it's not until Romans 6 through 8 that some of the other ones are going to be unpacked in greater detail. So three objections that we kind of get some, some seeds, some foundational uh, concepts of answers to these questions. But they're just kind of left to kind of simmer until 6 through 8 and then 9 through 11 uh, respectively. And they're, they're questions that deal with God's faithfulness and that try to reconcile the idea we're going to see of, of God's faithfulness with God's judgment of sin, right? Um, like, how can God be faithful? Or e- either, either God judges sin, or God is faithful to his promise to be kind to his people. But how can he do both? How can God, how can God be both faithful to his word and uh, righteous judge of sin together, right? Those two, uh, for a lot of people in, in Paul's day, seemed uh, irreconcilable, as maybe they, they, uh, maybe they do to, to many people in our culture Today, So we're going to talk about um, God's faithfulness and how it's expressed through his judgment of people who have rebelled against him. So that's why it's difficult, right? Because it's uh, not, a, not necessarily a pleasant topic to, to consider. Structurally, um, we've been working through Romans so far. Uh, Romans 1, 16 to 17 is where we kind of saw the, the main thesis of the book. That, that um, Paul's got, the gospel that Paul preaches is the power of God to save sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. Sinners uh, don't will themselves into heaven. Sinners don't manufacture their own salvation from within themselves. God saves sinners by his power. That's kind of Paul's gospel in Romans 1, 16 to 17. Uh, Romans 1, he, say, he goes to show how... Gentiles and people who are not religious and people who are far from God need God to save them. They need the gospel, the power of God in their lives. They're still, they're, they're accountable to God, even though they uh, are not, you know, from within the nation of Israel, even though they haven't been exposed to God's word, um, they are still accountable to God and without excuse. Romans 2, religious people, uh, people within the nation of Israel are also without excuse. Paul says it's not just enough to have the law. It's not just enough to possess the law, right, that, that it's been read to you from your, from your parents or to know it. You have to obey it. You have to live it. And so when, mem- when citizens of Israel, when religious people don't live the law of God perfectly, when they don't practice what they preach perfectly, then they too are accountable to God and they are deserving of God's judgment. So by the end of chapter 2, Paul has kind of shown that every single person, religious, non-religious, righteous, unrighteous, Jew, Gentile, every single person is deserving of God's judgment and wrath and condemnation. What he's doing is he's undergirding, he's establishing the thesis, right? The thesis from Romans 1, 16 to 17 is that God saves sinners. So any good legal expert, any good debater or arguer is going to say, you know, they're, they're, here's how you argue a point. You don't just 
say your point, right? In, in Romans 1, 16 to 17, Paul says his point. God saves sinners. But you don't just say that. You have to establish it. You have to look at it and figure out what are the underlying premises and, and kind of what is assumed, what, what, what do I need to prove in order to establish this point? And that's what Paul does in Romans 1 through 2. He establishes that human beings do in fact need God to save them. They're under God's righteous condemnation. But the next thing that a good arguer or a good debater or a good lawyer would do is not just establish the premises and prove them for your main point, but it's also to uh, anticipate any possible objections that your hearer might have, right? If I make a point, but then there are a dozen kind of questions lingering in the air that the person who just heard it probably has, if I let them walk out with those questions unaddressed, then my point's not as strong. But if I hear them, name them, and, and say them, and answer them, and make sure that we kind of address them appropriately, it makes for a stronger case. Romans 3, 1 through 8 is Paul answering the objections that he anticipates that his hearers are probably going to have about his gospel. And so he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish, a mixed but predominantly Jewish audience. And so he's kind of getting into their brains and thinking, what objections might they have about this gospel that I just told them, that God saves sinners by grace who trust in, in Jesus? So how are they going to object to that? And that is what we're going to walk through, these three objections that Paul kind of names and, and then um, works, works out and kind of answers in these eight verses. So I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll... We'll get rolling. It says, um, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Question two, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Question three. But, but if our righteousness, or if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying? Their condemnation is, is just. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would meet us here this morning and speak to us, and reveal yourself to us, and help us to see you, and help us to respond rightly to you, Lord. We pray that you would um, impress the truth of the gospel on our heart, and soften our hearts so that we might hear it, and believe it, and love it, and live in, in light of it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, three questions. We'll take them one after the other, after the other, the first one, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Right? Paul just got finished saying that everyone in the world, every human being who has ever taken a breath, is under the judgment and wrath of God. Gentiles and non-religious people are under the judgment of God. Jewish people and religious people are under the, the judgment of God. We're all guilty. We're all deserving of his wrath. Now, if you're a Jewish person in the first century AD, or for that matter, if you're a religious person in the 21st century of America, what's the, the follow-up question that you might naturally ask after you hear that? What's What's the point? Then what's the point of this whole thing, Paul? What, what, why, am I even, why am I even a Jew then? What's, why did I get circumcised? It wasn't pleasant. What, what is, what's the point of being a Jewish person? Uh, the whole reason I did this is so that I could have eternal life. I, my, my understanding coming in was that Jewish people receive eternal life. Gentiles don't. Now you're demolishing that whole worldview that I had. Why have I even... You know, why, why have I even been doing this religious thing all this, all this time? When I was um, 
When I was, before I became a pastor, I was working in the, in the marketplace for a company, and there was this one particular position in our company that was like pretty sought after. Everyone wanted to have that position. And it took a while. It was like, um, it was a lengthy process to, to get there. You know, it was good pay, good benefits, good management, good work-life balance, all of the things that other work centers had to deal with that they were, that they didn't like. This one was, was kind of, everyone liked it. But again, to get there, you had to get all these certifications. You had to have all of these like career experiences. You had to apply for them and get accepted for them. And, and even after you did, you know, multiple years of all of this stuff to get to where you're qualified to hold that position. And even after you do, then you still have to wait for that, for the one, a, an opening for, for that position to open up. You have to apply for it. You have to hope that you're the one that, the, that they select. And another thing that marked my time at this particular company was there was always a a new th- there's always a flavor of the month. There's always a, this quarter we're going to focus on this, or this month we're going to try to do this. And there was always a new, a new thing that you got to, that, that management's rolling out. You know, they're going to roll it out, and then they're going to circle back, you know, the whole thing. So, um, so one of the, one of the, pri- at one time, one quarter, the new thing that they rolled out was that this particular job was eliminated. Like this job that everyone liked and everyone wanted and people were kind of aiming for is gone. And they kind of were very clear. They're like, no one's getting fired, laid off. If you have that job, you've got it as long as you want it. You know, but if you get, if you transfer or if you get promoted or if you quit, we're not going to replace that. that, Just that, that head count for that work center is just going to shrink until it's just gone. And uh, everyone that was like, Want everyone that had been working for years to try to get that particular job was really, really mad. They'd been like pursuing all of these certifications and, you know, really sucking up to all of the bosses that they needed to, to make sure that they were the first in line to get that job. And, and the, the ones who were like, had everything in place. And as soon as an opening came up, they were going to be the one to get it. They were furious and they were asking this, they were asking this question, what what have I been doing this all for? Why did I go through this six-month thing? Why did I go do that? Why did I work all these late nights and, and early mornings so that I could be first in line to get this job? And now the job is not even... Now I've got to go... I've got to go eye another job in another work center, and I'm going to be behind a bunch of knuckleheads that have less tenure than me, but they've just been on that particular... You know, I've been with the company 10 years. They've been with it five, but they've spent the last four aiming for this job. So they were, they were frustrated. That's what they're, right? What, what's, Paul, if your gospel is true, then you're saying that everything that we've done, all of the investments that we've made in this religious system is all of no value. What's the value of circumcision? What's the advantage of being Jewish? Now, what, what would you expect, how, what would you expect Paul's answer to be based on a cursory reading of Romans 1 and 2? You might expect his answer to be, yeah, you, that's a good point. There is no advantage. There is no value in being circumcised because I just finished two chapters explaining that we are all on a level playing field, guilty before God, deserving of his righteous wrath, so there is no advantage to being Jewish. You might expect Paul to say that, but he says, what's the advantage of being Jewish? What's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. There is, there is an infinite, there's an immeasurable, every, like, the, the, the advantage is you can't even wrap your mind around how much of an advantage you have to be a, a part of the nation of Israel. I mentioned at the, uh, up top that, that some of these objections are unpacked in greater detail later. And so Romans 9 through 11 are uh, where, this, where the, the objection in verse 1 and 3 are unpacked in Romans 9 through 11. And so uh, in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with how can God, these questions, right? How can God's promises to Israel, how can God be vindicated as faithful to his promises to his nation of Israel, given that salvation is by grace through faith and it doesn't come by being a good Jewish Israelite? If, if, if you're not saved by being a good Jewish Israelite, then everything Paul said in the Old Testament He's obviously, was he lying? What's, what's going on with that? Romans 9 through 11 is where Paul deals with that uh, in, in length. And what he says in Romans 9, 4 to 5, he basically answers this question in a much more expanded way. He says, uh, what's the advantage of being Jewish? Well, they are Israelites. 
Romans chapter 9, verse 4. You feel free to flip there or just listen. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, so countless advantages and blessings to being a member of the, the nation of Israel. You have all of these things that we're going to get to, to later, but he says, to begin with, right, for starters, what I'm just going to mention right here, and then we'll kick the rest of it down till, till Romans 9, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What advantage has the Jewish person? Much in every way. For starters, for one, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Meaning, it's absolutely an advantage to grow up in a faithful Jewish family in the first century AD. Right? You're, you're hearing me, you're hearing me, Paul, say that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the judgment of God and need to be saved by Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. And, what and your response is, well then what's the point? Why am I even being a Jewish person? I'm telling you, there are plenty of advantages short of being guaranteed eternal life apart from faith in Christ. What, what, you, what you're, say, you're saying you want me to tell you is being Jewish guarantees you eternal life even if you don't trust in Jesus. I'm not saying that, but just because being Jewish doesn't guarantee you eternal life does not mean that being Jewish is not advantageous to you and your soul and your development as a person. One of the biggest advantages that you have to begin with is that you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Right? You get to know who God is. God has given you his word. You, you grow up in a family that reads God's word and orients itself around God's word so you know who God is. You know that he's holy and righteous. You know how God is to be approached through sacrifice, through the blood of an innocent substitute who dies in your place and satisfies God's wrath. You know who God is and how to approach him. And then when you see Jesus come and give his life as a sacrificial lamb for you, it's meant to all click into place and cause you to, to repent of your sins and trust in, trust in him. What advantage do you have? Much in, much in every way. I mean, think about, yeah, here, like, so does, does growing up in a Christian family and attending church from the moment you're born until the moment you leave home guarantee someone eternal life? Or are you, are you guaranteed, regardless of whether you trust in Christ or not, are you guaranteed to, to you know, have eternal life in heaven with God simply because you grow up in a Christian family and go to church as a, as a child? Of course not. But are there advantages to growing up in a Christian family with parents who love Jesus and who love each other and stay married and committed to one another and they raise you in the nurture and the, the admonition of, of the Lord. Of course, right? You, you, you know, they bring you to church, you're exposed to the gospel, you're exposed to the... How many of us remember Bible verses to this day as grown-ups that we learned uh, from like Awanas as a kid or songs that we learned in VBS as a kid that our parents drug us to and we were fighting the whole way. We didn't want to go. They make us go, sit you down in the chair and then you hear some song. Now like you're, now, you know, you know, now that particular verse from that psalm or from that letter is burned into your brain forever and ever, right? Your parents bring you to church. You meet other grown-ups, other adults who teach you in uh, children's church and, and Sunday school, and they're helping to disciple you. You meet other kids your age who are excited about God. So you kind of have this, like, you know, you have this magnetic draw toward following God and, and walking with God. Does, does growing up in a Christian home save you and guarantee you eternal life? Absolutely not. But is it advantageous? Yeah. It, much in every way. Right? That's why, that's why God says in Deuteronomy 6, right? Uh, These words that I command you, they should be on your heart, and you, parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and you shall walk by them when you lie down and when you, when you rise. Ephesians 6, parents, bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So, so there is absolutely benefit and advantage and value to, to growing up. There was to being a Jew in the first century. There is to growing up in a Christian family today. It's not, uh, you're not guaranteed to go to heaven because you 
grew up in a particular setting, but growing up in that setting has its advantages. And, and the thought of the, the, the passive-aggressive response of saying, well then, if growing up in a Christian family or if being a Jew in the first century doesn't guarantee me eternal life, then what's the point of it anyway? Why do I even want to be it? Paul says that is, that, that is to be rejected and, and um, dismissed outright. There is absolutely an advantage to being exposed to the word of God, to being entrusted with the oracles of God, and to be, to be you know, given a category through which to understand God and his grace. I mean, think about it. Like, Gentiles, according to Romans 1, Gentiles are under the judgment and condemnation of God, right? But, but Romans 1 says that the, the reason why Gentiles are accountable to God is because that they... they it's, it's a reasonable expectation that God has on them to worship him just by being a human being created in God's image, living in the world that God created. So, a Gentile is expected to intuit things about God just from the world that he sees around him and the, the nature of his own heart. And when he looks at his own heart and his predisposition to judge others, he's supposed to intuit from that that there is a moral standard that God is going to judge him by, and therefore he's accountable to God. There's, there's a lot that is kind of asked of a Gentile or a non-religious person in terms of understanding who God is, despite not being, you know, immersed in it. What does a Jewish person in the first century have to do to know about God? Just read, right? You, ha- you have a book, you have the law, you have the Old Testament, you have the Torah. All you have to do is, is pick up your copy of the Old Testament and read it, and you can know about God. There are immeasurable advantages to being a Jewish person, you've been entrusted with the, the oracles, the, the word of God. That's, that's objection number one that Paul deals with. He says, I'm not anti-Semitic, and I don't think that being Jewish is pointless. Just because I don't think that being a Jewish person will guarantee you eternal life does not mean I think that it's pointless to be a, a Jewish person. Objection number two, verse three. All right, Paul, well then what if some of those Jewish people, what if some of them were unfaithful? What if there are some Jewish people who, according to you, are under the judgment of God and are going to experience the wrath of God? What if they're unfaithful? What if they don't turn to Jesus? What if they don't trust in Christ? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So he's saying, we'll concede the first point that it wasn't entirely pointless for God to create the nation of Israel. We kind of thought that it was. We thought there was no advantage to being Jewish, but you've made your point. We'll concede that. But the fact remains, Paul, according to your gospel, not all Jewish people will remain faithful. Not all of them will trust in Christ. Not all of them will come to God on God's terms, trusting in the Savior that God has provided. So when some of those Jewish people are unfaithful, that means they'll be separated from God and judged by God under the wrath of God for their sin. And that's a problem. Because our understanding of God and of Judaism is that every single Jewish person is going to inherit eternal life. The whole whole Jewish worldview in the first century was based on that reality, that if you're Jewish, if you're circumcised, if you're within these borders, right, you practice our dietary, uh, you know, laws, you've been circumcised, you keep the Sabbath, right, you do all these festivals, if you do all of these things with us, then you will inherit eternal life. Those people out there will be judged by God for their sin, us in here, we are going to experience God's favor and his, his grace. And they rooted all of that, they rooted that worldview in the, the word of, in, in God's word, right? In the Old Testament. They look at, at God's uh, words to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will bless the world through you, right? These are binding promises that God made to Abraham. We are the descendants of Abraham, so clearly we have nothing to worry about because those binding promises pass to us. Exodus chapter 6, I will rescue you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Joshua chapter 1, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. There are 
firm, strong, weight-bearing, load-bearing promises in the Old Covenant that the Israelites took to heart and said, God can't judge us. He said he won't. He never can. He never will. It's, it's impossible. All Jews will inherit eternal life. It's, it's, it's inevitable. At most, we might suffer a little bit of consequences here in this life, but our eternity is set and it can never be shaken. Here's a couple of, here's a couple of uh, quotes from some, that were popular with the Jewish rabbis at that time. One says, all Israel has a portion in eternal life. Simple enough. Not, not a lot of ambiguity there. Another says, if a Jew commits all manner of sins, he is indeed of the number of sinning Israelites. So, he's bad. And he'll be punished according to his sins, but he has notwithstanding. He still has a portion in eternal life. Justin Martyr said this about the Jewish people. He said, they, Jewish people, they suppose that to them universally who are of the seed of Abraham, no matter how sinful and no matter how disobedient to God they may be, they suppose that the eternal kingdom shall be given to them. So if you're a Jew in the first century, this was central to your worldview. I am going to heaven to be with God forever. Why? Because I'm a Jewish person. I'm in the nation of Israel. I've been circumcised. I keep the dietary restrictions. I practice the Sabbath. I am a Jew, and God will bring me to heaven because of it. And here comes Paul, and he says, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. We're all going to hell unless we trust in Jesus, and he saves us from the hell and the wrath that we deserve. And the objection is going to come back, well then, God is a liar. God is unfaithful. Right? If, the, if our faithlessness can cause God to bring judgment and wrath on us, then our faithlessness nullifies the faithfulness of God. And again, Paul unpacks this in greater detail in Romans 9 through 11, because what he's going to say in Romans 9 through 11 is that not all who descended physically from Israel are truly spiritually of Israel. Kind of reminiscent of what he said in Romans 2. We looked at last week. You're right, you're not a Jew if you're merely one outwardly. You have to be a Jew inwardly, right? Paul is saying in Romans 9 through 11, he's saying, there are plenty of people who are physical blood descendants of Abraham that are not a part of Abraham's true offspring, right? What about uh, Ishmael, who was Abraham's son? He said it wasn't Ishmael, it was Isaac. What about Esau instead of Jacob, right? They're like God sovereignly has kind of preserved a remnant of faithful people within the nation of Israel. It's not the entirety of the nation of Israel. It's a faithful remnant within the nation of Israel. So he's going to unpack that in greater detail in Romans 9 through 11. This question, we'll have to kind of, we'll have to take what Paul says about it here and then wait for the greater weight of it to come later. But for here, what he says is, what if someone faithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. It's a powerful, powerful way to say that, right? Uh, the, the, the Greek language here, um, it's, it's a negative, uh, may, and then a word for being or existing, uh, genoita. Like almost similar, similar word as Genesis, right? So Genesis, something comes into being, right? So it, so it is, so it will be. And, and so this, this is saying may like non-genesis, non-starter, non-existence, may, may it never be, by no means, absolutely not, may it never be, right? It's not now, it never will, right? May it, may it never, that idea that you just said is a thing that does not exist and will never exist and cannot exist, by no means. He says, let God be true, right? The idea that our sin, our faithlessness, and the judgment of God that we invite on ourselves because of our sin, the idea that our sin could somehow impeach or impugn uh, the character of God and the goodness of God, that is, I won't even dignify that with a response. By no, by no means. Let God be true, even though every single man were, were a liar. So he's saying, there are, 
there are things that are true of created beings, none of which can affect the truthfulness and the character of God, the sovereign creator. Here's, so, so here's how created beings, right? Created beings, uh, we exist, Ben Lopresti exists, all of you exist, and then separate from us, apart from us, are these characteristics, these, these uh, ideals that are, are categories that are used to, to, to judge us, right? Um, Right. So if you want to determine whether Ben Lopresti is righteous or not, you take Ben Lopresti, who's this entity right here, and then you take righteousness, that's this other entity over here, and they're separate, and you use the category of righteousness, the ideal of righteousness, to examine Ben Lopresti and the degree to which I conform to that standard, I'm righteous, or the degree to which I fail to conform to that standard, I am unrighteous, right? Created beings exist, and then these categories, these characteristics exist apart from them, and they speak, speak unto them, they judge them, they are, the created beings are judged by those ideals. That's not how it works with, with God. God is who he is. God existed before any created being ever existed. God has always been who he is. He will never cease to be who he is. He is fixed for all of eternity, and he's unchangeable. So God is not a being who happens to be faithful or happens to be righteous or happens to be merciful or loving, right? As if faithfulness and mercy and love and righteousness are these separate categories that we use to examine and judge God's character. That's how it works with created beings. That's not how it works with God, the creator. Righteousness is a part of who God is. Righteousness is defined by God is the definition of what righteousness is, the definition of what mercy is, the definition of what faithfulness is, right? Apart from, there's no, there's no ideal of what is righteousness that we can use to look at God and judge God. So he says, it's impossible for God to ever be anything other than faithful because faithful is an expression of who God is. We would have no way of knowing what faithfulness is apart from looking at God who is faithful and then determining what faithfulness is based on who, who God is. So, so God is true even if every man were a liar. Nothing that any created being could ever do could ever call into the question the righteousness and the faithfulness of God. So Paul kind of, he throws the flag, right? Like, nice, nice try at this little rhetorical jiu-jitsu here of saying that, oh, well, because I did something wrong, maybe that means that I can say that God is wrong. Like, so therefore, you're like, he's like, that's not, you're being passive-aggressive. That's not, your objection does not stand because God is sovereign. God cannot be judged. Or like, our, the, the truth about the character of God is unimpeachable and unchangeable, and no matter what the created beings do, they can never cast dispersion on the truth and the righteousness and the faithfulness of God of God. God is true even if every single person is a liar. And then Paul calls on an expert witness to prove his point even more. Is that you may be judged in your words and prevail when you are judged. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is a quote from Psalm 51 which is King David. In 2 Samuel 11, I don't want to recount the whole story, um, but in 2 Samuel 11, David commits some pretty egregious sins. He's in the kingdom, or he's in his, his castle, he sees, or he's in his uh, palace, he sees Bathsheba, he has her brought to him, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, her husband's on deployment. So David knows that when Uriah comes back, he's going to see his wife is pregnant and know that it's not his baby. There's going to be a whole thing. It's going to be embarrassing. So to solve this problem, David has Uriah killed. He sends orders out to the, to the military, and he says, Uriah, who's my, is a friend of David's, by the way, like a, a one of his inner circle, his mighty men. He says, uh, take Uriah, who trusts me with his life. Take Uriah, send him out to the front lines, and then 
you're supposed to be there covering his back to make sure he doesn't get killed. I want you to just withdraw away from him and leave him to be completely surrounded by dozens, hundreds of enemy combatants who will slaughter him. And David says, let's do that. Problem solved. The only person who knows anything about this whole thing is Bathsheba, and eventually it would have been Uriah. Now he's dead, so we're good to go. Except God knows, and God tells his prophet Nathan, and in 2 Samuel 12, the next chapter, Nathan comes to David and says, David, there's a rich man. Here's a story. Let me do a little, you know, a little scenario for you, David. There's a rich man who uh, has everything he could ever want. All of the animals, all of the money, and he can eat anything he wants. And, he's, and there's a poor man that lives next to him who has one little pet lamb. Poor man, doesn't have any, you know, and, and his, this lamb is not, uh, he's not raising it to, you know, eat. It's his pet. He eats with him. He sits at his table and, you know, he treats him like a child. He loves him. And the king has, the king has, you know, animals that have been bred specifically to be the tastiest animals you could ever imagine in the world, right? Fattened up to be just perfect marbled, you know, like, and, and servants to prepare. The king could have anything he wants, and that king sets his eye on that poor man's lamb and says, kill that man's lamb, I want to eat that for dinner. And he does. He kills it, he steals it, he kills it, and he eats it. And Nathan says, what should happen to that king? And David is furious. He's like, that is... That king should die for what he did. That is unacceptable. That is theft. And it is, he, he is, you know, that man is guilty before God. And Nathan says, David, you are that man. You could have any person you wanted. You stole another man's wife. You took advantage of her. And then you murdered that man to cover it up. You are far more guilty than this fictional character that I just told you about. And David's broken, and he's, he confesses his sin, and he goes and he writes this psalm. It says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my sin. I have done what is evil in your sight, and you are justified in your words, and you are blameless in your judgment of me. You will prevail when you Judge me, cleanse me, wash me, hide your face from my sins, give me a clean heart, give me your Holy Spirit. The whole, the whole point of Psalm 51 is David saying, I deserve wrath, I'm asking you for mercy. There's nothing that I can say or do that will excuse me. My only hope is your grace. I was in the wrong and you are in the right to punish me. And Paul says, how dare you say that I was in the wrong and therefore God would be in the wrong to punish. Like, David had it right. I was in the wrong, and if you punish me, God, you are in the right. You'll be justified. You will prevail. For a person to sin against God and to say, it would be wrong for God to punish me is, is absurd. It's, it's may it never May it never be, by no means. God's faithfulness is established forever, even in the faithlessness of his, his people. So objection one is, what's the point? Right? If Jews are going to experience judgment, or if they have even the potential, the capacity to experience judgment in hell, then doesn't that mean that God, or yeah, then what's the point? And Paul says the point is you get God's word. You get to be exposed to the saving word of God. Question two, if there are Jews who eventually will experience judgment in hell, doesn't that mean that God has gone back on his word? And the answer is not at all. God can judge anyone he wants. And when he does, that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. Rather, that means that God is being faithful to his character to judge sin. And then finally, question number three, objection number three. Well, Paul, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He's saying, you just said that, that God is going to judge sin and sinners, that we're all going to be judged by God, and you just said that when God ju- you know, David said, right, you will prevail when you judge me, right? You are... Um, you are faithful to, to, to bring judgment against me, right? 
uh, what, what did David just say? Yeah, you are justified, right? When, when God punishes David for his sins, he's justified and he prevails. So they're saying, well, if, if this judgment of sin that we never even thought was going to happen, but you're telling us is, but if this judgment of sin serves to make God look good, if God is glorified in his judgment of sinners, if, he's, if he prevails, if he is justified, then doesn't that mean that when we, aren't we doing God a favor? When we sin and God judges us and God is therefore glorified in his judgment of sinners, then doesn't that mean that our sin served to glorify God? What, Paul, Paul, your gospel, I don't know if you realize this or not, Paul, right? It's the kind of, you know, passive-aggressive. I don't know if you realize this, but what you're really saying is that we should just sin all the more. Because the more we sin, the more God is glorified. Your gospel, Paul, is a license to sin, and it's telling us to sin. And Paul, Paul says, this is his third objection, he says, I, sp-, he said, I can't even get these words out of my mouth without qualifying. I speak in a human, like if you're, if you're in grade school and your friend said, like, sw- just swear word, right? A bad word, something you'll get in trouble for saying, and the teacher, what did you say? And he just clams up. I'm not going to. I didn't say anything. And she looks at you. What did he say? Tell me what he said. And you're like, all right, well, kind of in a corner here. I know, I heard it, and I can tell you, but I'm not, I'm not the one saying it. Like, I, don't, don't blame me for this four-letter word I'm about to say, because I'm just saying that he said it. I'm not really saying it. This is like a cone of, you know, I need, I need some immunity before I say what, right? That's what he's saying. I'm not, this is so ridiculous. I can't even say it without parenthetically qualifying and saying, please don't ever think that that was not stupid, right? If our unrighteousness, because I mean, when you think about it, it's, it doesn't even follow. If, if God is glorified in his judgment of sin, then obviously God is therefore not able to judge sin. It's like a, it's this weird, you know, like let's try, to, let's try to argue ourselves out of this corner that we're in and the argument is self-contradictory and, and ab- absurd. And so Paul says, I can't even say this without qualifying that it's in a human way, but does our unrighteousness, which shows the righteousness of God, which it does, uh, does that mean that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And it's the same negation, right? By no means. May it never be. That is, that doesn't exist. It has never existed. It could never, that, that, is a non-existing assertion that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on his people. And then Paul defends, he kind of combats this objection with three questions of his own that's meant to kind of show how absurd it is. He said, if that's true, if God cannot judge sin, because sin actually serves to glorify God, if God can't judge sin, then how could God judge the world? Meaning, if my gospel is licensed to sin like you're accusing me that it is, then that means that God could never judge anyone ever. And everyone in the nation of Israel all agreed that is ridiculous. That is foolish. The idea that God would not judge the world, laughable. Because again, part of the whole, part of the whole thing in Israel was we are Israelites and we can never experience God's judgment. We will inherit eternal life no matter what. Because we have these promises that are binding. But the flip side of that was everyone else, every Gentile, they're going to hell. They're bad, bad people, and they're going to hell. And, and that, was, that was baked into them through centuries of oppression and exploit. When you're baking bricks in Egypt under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh, the only thing that you have to get you out of bed in the morning is this, this is bad. But at least God's going to save us and bring us to heaven. And at least God's going to take these wicked oppressors and judge them for it. Right? When, when the Assyrians invade and put hooks through your noses and cheeks and carry you off in, in huge lines of, of slaves, you know, into captivity. When, when Babylon invades, right? Uh, you know, Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, when you are under the thumb of oppressive empire after oppressive empire after oppressive empire for centuries, all you have to hold on to is that God's going to save us and God's going to judge them. 
And so Paul's saying, if your objection about my gospel is true, then you've just said that God cannot judge the world. God cannot judge sinners. Homework, two, two, two passages to read for homework this week. Psalm 73 and Habakkuk. And basically the same thing. Psalm 73, uh, you know, God's, psalmist starts, God, all I see is the prosperity of the wicked. All I see is evil people prospering all around me. And he says, but then I went into the presence of God, and I realized that he is going to judge them and destroy them. This was, they, were, they took comfort and solace in that, that God is going to judge evil. Habakkuk, God, why do you allow destruction and violence? Why are you allowing wicked people to win? And God says, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. I'm going to crush sin and sinners and bring judgment against them. The idea that God is not going to judge sin in the ancient world was laughable. It was a nut. Like, would you ever, is this a helpful apologetic today? Right? If you, if you talk to someone, a non-Christian, about the gospel, do you think their objection is going to be that gospel is ridiculous because you're saying that people who deserve hell are going to be saved from hell? The, the objection you hear today is, I can't believe in a God who would... I can't believe in God because you're saying that that God... You're, I can't believe in a God if hell exists. If hell exists, then God can't be, be good. And Paul's saying, your objection to my gospel effectively amounts to a denial of the existence of hell. You're saying, that, you're saying that there's no way that God could judge your own oppressors, rapists, murderers. And we all know that that is wrong. Right? The idea of hell might seem unsettling at first. But what's far more unsettling is that there's no God who is never going to bring his righteous, divine judgment against sin. The idea that sin will go unpunished, that there's no one in charge, there's no one who's going to make all things right, that the scales of justice will not finally in eternity be balanced by a God who is sovereign over them, that is far more unsettling than the doctrine of of judgment and and hell. In verse 7, Paul kind of hypothetically plays the role of his objector. Well, if but through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why don't you answer that, Paul? Like, why don't you tell, like, like, obviously my lie, like, I should just be able to lie all I want because, you know, my lie only makes God look, look better, right? Why not do evil that good may, may come. And Paul says, people slander me by saying, people say that I think that, and it's absurd, and it's slander. I'd sue them if I lived in the 21st century. I don't teach that we should do evil, that good may come. I know it. They know it. I never have. I never will. I don't teach that we should lie because our lie actually serves to glorify God, so therefore God is not right to condemn us. I don't teach that. They know that I don't. They're just being obnoxious. They're just, they're just trying to, you know, say things. They're just trying to gotcha journalism, and it's ridiculous. They're slandering me, and their condemnation is just. They know full well these people that are trying to discredit my gospel about Jesus saving sinners, dying on the cross for them. They know that, that their objections are invalid. And when they raise them against me, they are inviting a condemnation on themselves that is just and right. And again, so if the first two objections are going to be unpacked in greater detail in Romans 9 through 11, then this one is going to be unpacked in greater detail in Romans 6 through 8. This idea that why not do evil that good may come of it, right? Why not sin all the more so that God's grace will abound all the more? Paul's going to teach in Romans 6 through 8 that, that receiving grace from God, if you really receive God's grace, that cannot, will not, ever result in you saying, great, let me just abuse it and take, all, take even more of it. Receiving grace from God will invariably mean that you're 
The Holy Spirit comes into your life, into your heart. Your desires are changed, regenerated, and now you want to live a new life that glorifies God as a result of it. So we'll dive into that in Romans 6 through 8. For our purposes today, though, objection number one, right? That we've been entru- we have been entrusted with the oracles, the, the word of God. Friends, God has given us his word. He's entrusted us with his word. He's given us an opportunity to know who he is. Let's not squander it. Let's not trample on it. Let's respond rightly to the word of God by trusting him and turning from our sin. Objection number two. God is right and just and good to punish us. If, if God were to condemn you to eternity in hell, he would not have done anything wrong. He is totally, utterly free to punish anyone and everyone for their sins. So, let's respond with humility. Let's not presume or expect or demand that God is going to give us what we want. Let's come before him with a contrite heart and a broken heart, asking for grace instead of demanding what we deserve. And then finally, objection three. The grace of God, the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God is not license to sin. Instead, it is fuel for righteousness. God forgives his people, and when he does, he then empowers them and mobilizes them to live a new life. There's a a, a hymn from the 18th century by William Cowper. It says, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You might expect to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice gives me freedom to do anything I want without consequence. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes my heart from a slave that didn't want to do what God was telling me to a a child that, that lovingly wants to obey his father. And it turns duty... Into, into choice. I obey because I get to. It's a privilege. Let's be a church that trusts in Christ together and walks in faithfulness and obedience together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that salvation is found in Jesus Christ, given by the sovereign grace of God. Lord, there is nothing that we could ever do to earn or deserve the salvation that you offer. We acknowledge that you are right and just to judge us and condemn us, and we pray that you would be gracious to us, and we pray that we could respond to your grace by living lives of godliness that glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.